Hi, it's Mike. So there was a problem with our audio in the spiel. So we've just scrapped the spiel. Turns out that recording in Romanian, translating to French, and then into Italian, back into English, does not reflect the best practices of audio management. Though, they're all Romance languages, save English. So, no spiel, we're going to perfect it, and then serve it to you piping hot, probably in its own feed. So here is the show, absent the spiel. I may allude to it, refer to it. There shall be no spiel, because we aim for perfection. If not perfection, just the avoidance of total and outright embarrassment. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, May 2nd, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You know, people write a lot of stories about Donald Trump. But he thinks no one's writing stories. No one's asking questions. A few examples. In fact, we'll start with Trump saying the same thing. I'll give you an example. I'm not going to do the Trump impression. I'll just read the quote. This is from a Bloomberg interview. I'll give you an example. So nobody wrote wrote this story, but maybe somebody should. The F-35 fighter jet I saved, I got involved in the negotiation. It's 2,500 jets. I negotiated for 90 planes, lot 10, don't know what that means. I got 725 million off the price. Probably if I if I added up the entire time I worked on it, it was like an hour, but I got 725 million off the price. All right. Let us examine this as Trump asserts, hitherto untold tale. We cut approximately 600 million dollars off the F-35 fighter. Now, that was from late January, and then he was claiming that he saved $600 million on the F-35. And by the way, you hear those clicks in the background? You know where I got this clip? From a newscast. It was covered on the news, and it was also available in written form. He subsequently, in subsequent tellings, upped the amount he saved. Here he is a little over a month later. To save taxpayer dollars, I've already begun negotiating better contracts for the federal government saving over $700 million on just one set of airplanes, of which there are many sets. That was, in fact, reported on, like many of the things the president, okay, let's say all of the things the president does and says. I did not pull the clip off the dark web where it was shared around by weird Trump aficionados. It was a well-covered statement. And then just a couple days ago, he bragged to the AP, There are 3,000 planes that are going to be ordered. On 90 planes, I saved $725 million. It's actually a little bit more than that, but it's $725 million. Again, the AP, the PNAP stands for press, and they write stories. The AP has written this story, and so has the Washington Post. This is how the Washington Post covered this story that was never covered. Every time he says it, they write it up as a four Pinocchio exaggeration, because it turns out that, I'll quote how they describe it, Trump takes credit for the lowered costs, but the Pentagon has announced cost reductions of roughly $600 million on the F-35 before Trump began meeting with Lockheed Martin's chief executive. Trump, over time, keeps increasing the money he allegedly saved. They document 15 examples of him citing this thing that no one reports. And then, to John Dickerson on Face the Nation, Trump said, uh, Hillary's husband makes speeches in Russia. Hillary did a uranium deal with Russia. Nobody ever talks about that. But I don't know, because you don't, the FBI 
was not allowed by Podesta to go in and check all of the records and their servers and everything else that you would normally have to check. That's number one. Actually, I read about that story on the front page of the New York Times. Story went on for quite a while. Also, Trump has said it at least half a dozen times. All have been covered, as usually happens when the president says something. The Washington Post also rates that for Pinocchio's in its exaggeration, which gets to the reason why that statement in the Lockheed story isn't so widely covered. Because it's not true. I guess it's hard to say that to Trump during an interview. You really ruin the vibe and, you know, he'll wave you off. But if he says, I wonder why nobody ever covers this, if you interject, oh yeah, because it's not true and we have standards, he's not going to like you. It's going to get you labeled by him fake news, and it's going to put you in the Trump crosshairs, the elaborate, bouffantish crosshairs. But we, on our show, we are not done with the questions that Trump says nobody asks. In the spiel today, to the nobody asks way back machine. But why was there the Civil War? Why could, why could that one not have been worked out? But first, a man who really is asking the questions nobody asks top-rate intellect, went to the finest schools, teaches at one. Cass Sunstein is here to talk about his new book, Hashtag Republic. An era of mass communication has given away to this, the era of siloed communication, a common people separated by divergent reports on what's going on in the world around them. For me, it might be cops killing unarmed black men. For you, it might be streams and streams of reports under the rubric black crime, actual rubric on the Breitbart site. For me, it might be copious documenting of the flaws, lies, and dangers of an intemperate huckster candidate. For you, the opposite candidate is equally eviscerated, ties to power, and gains that we presume are ill-gotten. We've always embraced the technology that brought us closer together and then later grappled with its effects to drive us apart. But I think something new is happening, and so does Cass Sunstein. He is the author of Hashtag Republic, Divided Democracy in the Age of Social Media. Hello, Professor Sunstein. Hello, sir. Good to be here. Um, and am I saying it right? I mean, it looks like it's supposed to be said hashtag republic. That's completely right. Okay. That's the title of the book. Very good. So I remember the play Inherit the Wind, and they said, you know, in the closing in the closing moments, I could give you the airplane, but birds will lose their wonder and the clouds will stink of gasoline. I could give you the telephone, but you lose privacy and the charm of distance. It's not a new problem that technology uh, has consequence and drives us apart, but what is new about it in your estimation? What's new about current social media and, and the proliferation of political websites is that it is so easy to self-select into a cozy cocoon of like-minded types. And if it's not so easy in the sense that you don't even want to bother, then someone might well do it for you. There may be an algorithm that uh, knows uh, who you are, basically, and then you'll find yourself in that cocoon even if you haven't selected it. Uh, in all of human history, we haven't seen that before. Is it better business to have an echo chamber than to have whatever the ideal is of uh, an agora free market? I think we don't have enough uh, data, really, to know. So 
clearly some social media have profited greatly by helping people to sort themselves into echo chambers or by using an algorithm which sorts them. So that that has been a pretty successful business model, and Facebook, to some extent, has used that with its newsfeed. But what we've seen, especially in the last few months, and to some extent, you know, with uh, networks that have done super well in the last 50 years, and newspapers and magazines that have done super well, is that a lot of people can make a ton of money by saying, you know what, we're going to provide you with lots of stuff, and some of it will discomfort you or challenge you, and some of it will be on subjects you never would have wanted to read about. Just watch us that you're going to like what you got. And and that can make money too. So my, my bet is that in the fullness of time, the second model, that is the non-echo chamber business model, is going to be producing uh, a lot of economic revenue. I take your point about polarization. It's clear, and I uh, sign on to the siloing problem. I wonder, though, a few years ago, uh, Stanford professor Morris Fiorina wrote a book called One Nation After All, I think it was called. It was just about how, if you look at polls, we're not really that divided compared to other countries, compared to our history, compared to when slavery drove us apart or the Know Nothing Party or, you know, all these much more divisive times in American history. And maybe it's just a consequence of our ideological sorting among the parties that we have these two teams to play for, but the actual ideas. There's not this huge chasm. Subscribe to that at all? No, I don't (laughs) subscribe to that at all. So, I mean, if the claim is that there have been other times in human history that have seen equal or greater polarization, that's undoubtedly the case. But if the idea is that there's, you know, a lot of unity in the United States with respect to things that matter, that involve problems that people face, that's palpably false, that members of Congress care about one thing more than anything, most mostly at least, that is uh, getting reelected, which means they're very attentive to what their constituents want them to do, which means that those forms of, you know, radical splits between Republicans and Democrats, which we've seen in recent years, are not just because members of the House and Senate think, I, I'm going to vote with my party, but because they know their, their job prospects are on the line. Now, you can find other periods in American history that also are polarized, similarly polarized, but uh, it's, I think, more important to say there are concrete problems that we are incapable of solving or on which we get divided in a kind of my team, your team way. And that's really terrible. It's more important to focus on that than to say, well, in 18-whatever, that happened too. Cures. Uh, Town hall meetings? We saw a few of those. They seem to go well. Yeah, so town hall meetings have have problems. Your assessment of, of Donald Trump, I understand, I respect. The way we determine who our commander chief in this country is is through elections. And we just had an election. So as back to the founders, the idea of self-government by having ordinary people who are really busy and maybe, you know, focused on their jobs and their families and not into the guts of some problem by putting it, throwing their hands isn't a very good idea, though ultimately they, that is, we the people have control. So there are a couple of things you can do. One is you can say that 
if the problem involves, you know, food safety, then it's good to empower people whose life is devoted to food safety, who know a ton about that stuff, to try to figure that out, subject to override ultimately by people and their elected representatives. So I think we have undervalued now the kind of phenomenal work of our civil service, the American civil service, which is not partisan in making it so that you can eat lettuce or uh, chicken and usually at least not fear you're going to get sick and you can drive on the highway and usually it's, it's going to be okay. You're not going to get crashed into. So th- that's one way to go. The other way to go is to try to build up systems or structures, and that's pretty abstract. We can get more concrete if you like, by which Republicans and Democrats who are uh, thinking together about some issue that concerns us, you know, it might be how are things going in the Middle East or in Syria, and they can do it in a way where if they go in a direction that evidence takes them, they don't think, I'm going to lose my job next time. I know that Breitbart has made inroads. I know that Facebook feeds are how so many people experience their news. Yet I don't think a site like Breitbart or any of the politically inflected sites are the biggest sites. And yet when I look at TV news, it's not just that Fox News has a beachhead, for instance, if you want to talk about siloed news, it's that it is the most popular news. And so that makes me despair for reasons beyond the fact that I don't think it's uh, the best journalism. It makes me wonder if uh, a market solution, for instance, is actually possible if the market is telling us that the most siloed is the most popular and most remunerative. There was a great psychologist who would have gotten the Nobel Prize for Economics if he hadn't died young, named Amos Tversky, who said, I'm an optimist, and that's rational, because if you are a pessimist, you suffer twice once when the bad thing happens, and once when you imagine it happening. So rather than despairing, I think it's rational because the future is extremely hard to predict. Think, what can we actually do? So, you know, either as producers or as consumers or as participants in a political process, even if it's just rare when we go to vote and then we read what we do before we vote, what what can we do about it? The arc of American history is supportive of an optimistic view. Uh, We're pretty good at problem solving. The echo chamber effect with respect to mass media, you know, Fox News, MSNBC, with respect to websites, it, it is a problem. It's not, in my view, a catastrophic problem, but it's a serious problem. And there's a lot of stuff we can do about it. Two other questions I want to ask you. One is your book, Nudge, which uh, is about using a little bit of behavioral economics and theory to get people to do the right thing. I wonder if 2017 America, if we're post-nudge or almost pre-nudge. I mean, nudge won't work in South Sudan, right? When the house is on fire, you don't want to nudge the fire department to come there. I don't know if things are so dire, but are those sort of um, prescriptions for an effective government, are they a little bit out the window right now? I don't think so. I mean, you know, there are a bunch of tools that any government has. There's uh, criminal law, there's fines, there's subsidies, um, there's uh, information disclosure, which is a nudge, there's uh, using social norms, that, that's a nudge. Um, and if you want to get people to put out a fire, uh, you want to have the right social norms in place and you want the right information there. 
And those are both very much nudges. So any society, no matter the magnitude of its problems, is going to have a toolbox of, um, of interventions and nudges, which are basically approaches that preserve freedom of choice. They'd better be part of the toolbox or else you're artificially truncating your weapons. I, I know the Trump budget, though, cuts some of these programs. I know that uh, the Obama administration embraced it. Are there areas that... Uh, you could, if you had 10 minutes with uh, Trump or who's ever making the decisions, convince him that it's actually in his, not interest as um, either morally or ethically, but actually in how he would define his political interest to use some of the ideas uh, in his administration. Well, there are a bunch of ideas that kind of cut across uh, Trump and Obama. Mm -hmm. So uh, the Department of Transportation has been focused on reducing deaths on the roadway, like by a lot. So they want to get by 2030, the number down to zero. That's very ambitious. Uh, the notion of cutting highway deaths a lot is something that Republicans agree on as much as Democrats, even if there's some disagreement on the tools. Those tools that involve uh, working on driver behavior so as to reduce, let's say, uh, texting while driving or speeding or drinking while driving. We know a lot about how to how to reduce those things. And that's something the Trump administration wouldn't care about less than the Obama administration. If you're thinking about some issue like uh, standard air pollution, which makes people sick, that's something which the new EPA has that it's going to concentrate on. And one way to reduce air pollution is to encourage people to uh, purchase products that contribute less to air pollution. And you can do that by just informing people of stuff. And that's not something that uh, divides the parties. So I expect we're going to be seeing a lot of nudging just in the ordinary operation of government, no matter who the president is. And lastly, the last time you were on the show, you talked about your Star Wars book. And so I have a question, uh, The World According to Star Wars, the name of that one. I have a question about Rogue One. Uh, first of all, this is my question, but did you like it? I think that's too weak. Uh, uh, loved it is closer. Adored it is closer still. In rapture because of it is, is probably the right term. I'm close to you. I may have teared up and afterwards I pump my fist and hug my kids. But here is my question. I think one might say of that, that without being steeped in the world of Star Wars, it's a less effective movie. And I wonder if A, you think that's true and B, you think that's okay. In a way, it's like saying, it's like criticizing um, if a Christian gets something out of a sermon, we wouldn't criticize that by saying, yes, well, a non it wouldn't resonate as much with a non-Christian. So what do you think of that whole morass of questions I just put on your lap? Yes, two questions. I think yes is the answer to both. So if you don't know anything about Star Wars, you won't love the movie as much. But if you don't know a lot about Star Wars, probably there's a solution to the problem, which is <laughs> learn a lot about Star Wars. See those movies. But I think one of the amazing things about this fantastic movie is even if you know nothing about Star Wars, it's a quite good movie. You're right. It doesn't have quite the resonance, but uh, uh, the people who made that movie deserve um, a standing ovation uh, for doing something which I think is extremely improbable, which is making a prequel to A New Hope a uh, smashingly successful 
in the sense of quality, movie. That's really hard. The little plot that preceded A New Hope, it seemed awfully thin and tiny. How could they make a movie yeah. of that? Yeah. And as you say, they made a, they made a tremendous movie. And by the way, uh, all during, in the last few months, I, we kept hearing about the breadcrumbs that were left by the Obama administration to uh, about Russian hacking. And I just once wanted someone to say, well, it's not so much a breadcrumb as the secret plot to destroy the Death Star that we saw in Rogue One. But no one has made that analogy yet. No, uh, you were the first. <laughs> Cass Sunstein is the author of, among, uh, I don't know, f- hundreds and hundreds of books. Hashtag Republic Divided Democracy in the Age of Social Media. Thank you so much. Thanks. Really enjoyed it. 